1: Welcome to Practical Living with Dale O'Shield, Senior Pastor of Church of the Redeemer in Maryland. We pray that through this message, you will learn how to apply God's Word and truth to your life. Stay with us as we discover God's truths that will transform us.
0: Well, here we are at Caesarea Philippi, and I want to take just a few moments and talk to you about a biblical story that happens here. So Jesus brings His disciples here to this particular location... And he brings them together, and he invites them to uh, answer a question. Uh, Many times Jesus is answering questions, but in this situation, Jesus asks a question. And he says, this is, by the way, in Matthew chapter 16, if you want to look there in your Bibles. Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? Now, that's a dangerous question, isn't it, okay? Okay. You're asking, what are people saying about me? And not everybody always says nice things about you. So Jesus says, Who do people say that I am? And they're saying, Well, some say you're Elijah, you're one of the prophets. And then he says, But do who, who do you say that I am? So he said, I'm not really interested in who everybody else says I am. I want to talk to you right now about your perspective of me. Who do you say that I am? What are you learning about me based upon your time with me? And so it was a very intimate moment. And Jesus then speaks these words, Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, notice this. Jesus has asked the question, guys, 12 of you, who do you say that I am? And of course, who speaks up first? Peter, Peter does. He's always opening his mouth, right? He's always saying he was the impetuous one in the crowd. And so often uh, you will see that Peter makes a fool of himself. He, he kind of says things before he thinks he's very impetuous. But in this situation, Peter really got it right. He really understood his proper response. So Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ That means Messiah, by the way. Just as a reminder, Jesus Christ is not Christ. is not Jesus' last name, okay? Christ is the word for Messiah. You're the Christ, the anointed one. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, "'Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, "'for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, "'but my Father who is in heaven.'" And I also say to you that you are, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that Jesus was the Christ. Let me break this down for you in just a few uh, dimensions here. So Peter says, I-, I know who you are. You're the Christ. The Son of the Living God, and Jesus said, Simon, blessed are you. You're blessed because your eyes and your heart have been open to the reality of who I am. Blessed are you, Simon, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, when he said upon this rock, he was not saying that Peter was going to be the rock of the church, okay? It was not that Peter many times Peter is celebrated as being the foundation stone of the church. That's not what Jesus was saying. Because it was not about Peter. It was about the revelation that Peter had in terms of who Jesus was. Upon this rock of revelation, you understand who I am. And upon this rock of revelation, you know who I am. And upon this rock of revelation, I will build something called my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the word that Jesus used for church is the word we know from the Greek language, ekklesia, and We hear the term ecclesiastical, the ecclesia, and there's a basic meaning of that word in the Greek language. It means those who are called out and called together according to his purpose, God's purpose in this situation. So Jesus said, I'm going to bring you together and together you as the church will be so strong that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Here's a key thing to remember. When you're a part of the church, you've got to understand that we is stronger than me. In every situation, we must understand that we're stronger together. We need one another. I can't exist in my fullness of faith without you, and you can't exist well without me. We're strengthened by one another. You can't really be a growing Christian on your own there's no such thing as being a lone ranger Christian we all need community we need fellowship with one another and so the we is more important than the me and so we come together as a church and Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it now to my left and you're right what did I tell you a moment ago that was known as over there It was actually known as the gates of hell. And so when Jesus said the gates of hell, he was talking about any evil dominating force would not be able to prevail against the church. Jesus Christ built, and is building a church that is strong that the gates of hell will not prevail against. We are, we are stronger together in Christ. And you're strong in your relationship with Him to the degree that, that, that you have the ability to overcome, to be victorious in your life. Now, Jesus said something else. He says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So I want to talk to you about keys because this, this is the main aspect of today's message. To break free from the powers of hell, you and I need some keys. As I think about a key, a key represents several things to me. A key represents certainly authority. If you have authority, you're usually given a set of keys, right? Keys represent access. If you have keys, you can get into places that other people can't get into. If you have a set of keys, you can lock things down that other people cannot get access to. So you get access to things. You can shut things out from other people or from other uh, opportunities for people to rob or steal or take away from you. Keys represent something that is useful in your life, but your keys are only useful if you use them. If you put them in your pocket and you never utilize them, a key has, of no, has no value. And so Jesus said, I want to give you keys of the kingdom. That is, I'm giving you authority. And that's what I want you to remember today. That To experience the God of miracles, you've got to understand that you have been given authority by Jesus Christ. And that authority comes in the, in the keys of the kingdom. And I'm going to tell, tell you a little bit about those in a moment, what they are. But those keys give you access to blessing They allow you to shut out the work of the devil, the adversary, and they cause you to realize that there is victory in your life, that you've been given something that Jesus said, my keys of the kingdom, I'm giving to you. Now, if I were to give you, I don't have any keys with me, but if I were to give you a set of keys to my house, what would that represent to you? It would represent permission, it would represent relationship, right? I don't give my keys just to anybody, okay? So it represents relationship. You can come and go from my house in the same way that I would, right? Because I've given you my keys. And so if you have my keys, then you have access as I do. And so Jesus said, I want the church to realize that I put some keys in your hand that give you access to the blessing of God in your life. And so Jesus said, with these keys, you can open things up and you can shut things down. Things that need to be opened up to you can open up with the keys. And things that need to be shut down can be shut down if you use the keys. What are the keys? I don't have time to talk about all the keys today. But what are some of the keys of the kingdom that Jesus taught us? Well, certainly one of the keys of the kingdom is prayer. When you begin to pray about things, begin to bring them to God in prayer, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open. Jesus said, I gave you the keys, but if you've got keys, but you don't pray, are you using your keys? No. So in prayer, it's the way you pull your keys out and begin to access the blessing of God for your life. And so maybe there are things that you need to be praying about right now that you haven't prayed about recently. Maybe there's some problems that are going on in your life, your family, your circumstances. I want to encourage you to grab hold of those keys and say, I've got the keys of the kingdom and I will access blessing by prayer. What's another key of the kingdom? Another key of the kingdom is praise. When you praise God, what you're doing is you're, you're actually creating an open heaven of blessing for your life. And so a lot of people miss out blessing, miss out miracles in their life because they don't learn to praise. They spend their time grumbling and complaining and negative about life and neg- negative about their circumstances. And so because they live in a negative, grumbling spirit, they're not opening themselves to the, to the blessing of God. Praise attracts the presence of God. And so praise is a key that you use. I'll give you another perspective of this. Uh, one of the things that helps you to experience the blessing of God in your life, it is a key. It's the key of being with the right people, okay? Who gets to choose the people that you have in your life? You do, okay? And so if you choose the wrong people, you're, you're, you're choosing uh, something that's going to denigrate your life. And when you make the right choice to, to be with the right people... And obviously that is the church, the, 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 the body of believers. What you're doing is you're putting yourself in a place where there's strength around you. As Jesus said that when you pray, pray together in agreement, there's an agreement, there's power in agreement when we as the church come together in prayer. I'll give you one more key of the kingdom that's changing the way you think. The Bible says that you and I need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so as we take the word of God and you and I begin to think the way the Bible calls us to think, we begin to put off the thinking of the world and take on the thinking of the kingdom. Then we're accessing keys that open up blessing in our lives. We're back again by the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to talk to you just for a couple of moments about Peter after his failure. And one of the things we realize at times in life when we fail and we fail God, we just don't know how to respond to our failure. And the wonderful thing about the Bible is that it, it tells us not only about the successes of people, but it tells us about the failures of people. And I'm glad that it's there because I can identify with failure. I can identify with the fact that sometimes we just don't get it right. And Peter was one of those guys that really failed miserably. When we get to Jerusalem, we'll go to the, the church uh, where it represents the point where where Peter uh, missed the mark, heard the, uh, the rooster crow and so forth. But right here, I want to talk to you about a moment that happened for Peter after his failure that was a significant moment in his life. You might recall that when Jesus was being arrested and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane that Peter denied him how many times? I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Actually, the scripture says one time he even cursed saying, I don't know him. And, and just imagine with me for a moment when jesus looked at peter the third time after he'd said i don't know him and their eyes caught and the bible says that peter went away and wept bitterly just imagine the kind of misery that peter must have been in after that time and he felt like he'd failed so badly that maybe he was not meant to be an apostle anymore even though jesus had come to him in galilee i'm sure he was still struggling with you know i really blew it at the time i should have been the strongest I was the weakest, and I just maybe, maybe I'm not cut out for this anymore. Maybe I just can't do this thing called being one of Jesus' apostles. And If you're in John chapter 21, I want to read to you a story uh, very quickly here that will describe what happened after this failure moment for Peter and how Jesus comes to him in a very unique way. It's found in jo- uh, John chapter 21, beginning in verse number 1. I'll start reading here. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. So where are we right now? By the Sea of Galilee, Simon, Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together, so there 's a whole group of them together i 'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they, and they said we 'll go with you, So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. This is important because when Jesus first called Peter, what was Peter doing? He was fishing, right? And do you remember what Jesus said to him? Come follow me and I will. So leave that behind and come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Does anybody remember what happened? Immediately he left his nets and did what? Started following. And so now they haven't been fishing for, for years now. Okay. So Peter left that behind and he's now been following Jesus. And he's making, he's, he's a fisher of men. But now, after his failure, he's hanging out by the Sea of Galilee and he makes this decision to do what? To go back to. To go back, okay, to fishing, right? So, why do you think Peter said, I'm going to go back to fishing? I'm just going to go out fishing. He felt badly. He's wondering if he's going to do this apostle thing anymore. He was kind of doubting himself. And so he said, I'm just, I don't believe it was just, hey, let's do some fishing, guys. I believe it had to do with the emotional response that he had on the inside that every one of us experienced from time to time called shame. That when you not feel ashamed of something, shame can drive you back to things you didn't do before, you haven't done for a while, things you used to in the past shame if you're if you if you have shame over your past you don't have any future anytime you have shame about your past that you can't get past you you live in in what's been before you and so here's peter dealing with this issue in his life he says i'm going fishing and this is the kind of influence peter had all the other disciples said well i guess we'll go with you okay so they all go out fishing and they fish all night and how much did they catch absolutely nothing which, by the way, was remembrance of the time that they'd fished earlier when Jesus met them and they caught nothing as well. Early in the morning, this is verse 4, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they replied or answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of, of the large number of fish. That had happened to them earlier as well. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard, heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat. So Peter could not get back to Jesus fast enough. There was something, there's something about the love of Jesus, even in the midst of your failure, that draws you to him. Even though Peter was a failure, he realized, I've got to get back in the presence of Jesus. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, 153, but even so many, the net was not torn. Go down to verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, I'm going to stop there. In this moment, what I want you to see is I want you to see the incredible love that God has for people who failed. The incredible, when you fail in your life, that's not the end of the story, okay? But when you've made a mis- mistake, you've messed up, the devil wants to discourage you and press you down and make you feel like there's no hope for your future. But Jesus, Jesus showed up when Peter was going backward and he called him forward again. He said, you know what, you you, you didn't you, you left fishing before. Now I want you to get back in right relationship with me. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Well, take care of my, my lambs. Take care of my flock. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. And the Bible says he was hurt because Jesus had to ask him that third time, do you love me? I believe he was hurt because he remembered the three times he had denied him. Okay. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is just as surely as Peter had three times denied, Jesus gave him the opportunity of three times affirming his fresh love for him. And in that moment, there was a restoration of Peter's life. And not too long after that, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was outpoured upon the church and God needed someone to preach the Pentecost message, do you know who stood up and preached? It was Peter that stood up and preached because Jesus' restoration of him had been so thorough that not one bit of shame was left in his life. Good to see all of you here today, and we're at Gideon Springs, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in just a moment. Uh, You can read in your Bible about this in Judges chapter 6 and 7. In Judges chapter 6 and 7, we have the story of a man by the name of Gideon. It's a very interesting story because it really helps us to identify with uh, a man who really did not, never felt like he could make much difference with his life, but God called him in a very unique way. And to give you a little bit of the background of the story, it's a time in the, uh, the nation of Israel when they're going through the period of the Judges. And the period of the Judges was a time when Israel would walk away from God, and then uh, God would allow certain things to happen in terms of oppressors to come their way. And the oppression that would come would drive them back to God, and so God would raise up a judge or a deliverer to bring them back to relationship with Him. And there was a time that a young man by the name of Gideon was uh, hiding in a cave uh, not too far from here, and he's he's in a situation where he's facing the the Midianites. The Midianites are coming against Israel; they're oppressing Israel in a very significant way, and uh, it's happening for seven years. And what would happen? The Midianites would come in. And they would ravage the land after when uh, Israel would plant the crops and the crops would be planted and growing. And then when the t- time of harvest would come, then uh, at that point, uh, the Midianites would come in and steal all of their food. And so it was a very terrible time. Seven years of this kind of stuff had gone on. And here's Gideon. He's up in a, in a cave. He's threshing out some wheat for his family. He's living in fear. He's trembling in fear. And God shows up in the form of an angel to him and speaks to him and says, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. And when Gideon hears those words, a mighty man of valor, he's kind of thinking, really, me? I couldn't be meek because I'm kind of living in fear and I'm not sure who you're talking to. And so he found himself feeling like he was inadequate in terms of what God was asking him to do. And God was calling him to actually go into to raise up an army and to go against the Midianites. And so he was feeling that sense of inadequacy and fear about doing this. I think for all of us is an important thing to remember is that God sees more in us than we ever see in ourselves. Sometimes in our own lives we see our limitations, we see how small we think we are and how limited we think we are, but God is able to do great things with little people. Uh, You don't have to be a mighty person for God to do mighty things through you. And so here's Gideon receiving this call from God. He eventually raises up an army to come against the Midianites. He responds positively to God's call. He raises up an army to go against the Midianites. And the first initial group of people that were raised up were about 32,000. Uh, Think about this, 32,000. You think that's a lot, but the Midianites had 135,000. And so uh, the 135,000 Midianites, 32,000 Israelites to fight them. So that still seemed seemed like the odds were kind of uh, against the Israelites. But uh, God told Gideon, you have too many. Now think about this. They were already outnumbered. And then God said, "You got too many." And so uh, He told uh, God said, "Tell told Gideon to tell everybody that was afraid to go home." And so as soon as uh, Gideon announced to to the to the army, anyone that's afraid, head home. Twenty two thousand of them left at that moment. Think about that. So twenty two thousand were too afraid to even fight. And so now he's left with ten thousand. Okay. And so he's thinking, "My goodness, we've got 135,000. Midianites approximately, we've got now uh, 10,000 Israelite soldiers. It would seem like, you know what, maybe God's going to do a miracle with this, but God then spoke and said, there's still too many, okay? Think about this, because I don't want to win this battle uh, and have Israel think that they did it themselves. I want to get all the glory from this. And so he said, I want you to take them to a particular spring, which, by the way, happens to be this spring that we're looking at right here, okay? And so he says, bring all these 10,000 to the spring and I want them to drink. Uh, from the waters. He gave them no instructions about how to drink. Watch how they drink and separate them. And the people that bend down and, and drink from the water, lapping it up like a dog with their heads down, then separate them into one group. And those that pull up the water and cup it in their hands and drink it, separate them into another group. And so there are two groups of separation there. One, again, that's lapping like a dog. The other that's uh, cupping with their hands and drinking vigilantly. And uh, only, t- only 300 of them picked up the water with their hands and drank vigilantly. And God said, I'm going to take those 300 and use those 300 to to conquer the Midianites. And all the others were sent home. And so now Gideon has gone from 32,000 to 22,000 to 10,000, now to 300. And God says, with these 300, I'm going to win this battle and he divided them into three companies. He gave them a trumpet in one hand and gave them a torch and a, and a sort of a jar, if you will, in the other hand, and the torches were to be lit. He divided them into three, three, three groups. And then they established their battle plan heading to the north. The Midianites were coming from this direction. And so they're going against them in battle in three different companies. And he says, when I blow my trumpet, then I want all of you to blow your trumpets and break your jars so that these these torches will, 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 will shine and it will look like there's a massive number of people when in reality there's only 300. So it was an amazing strategy that God gave him that would allow him to experience this victory. The spring here is called the spring of Herod. And the word Herod in the Bible means trembling. I think it identified them with the fear they were facing against the Midianites. And sometimes you have to face your fear before you can overcome your fear. And so you have to face it, face it down, declare the promises of God over it, and know that when you do that, God will give you the strength and the power to overcome. And so my primary message for you today, one of the greatest miracles of all, is when God convinces you, even though that you're small, that you don't have, you feel like you have very little to offer, God can still use the smallest, most ordinary person, and the smallest group of people to do incredible things. Never, never, ever underestimate what God can do in and through your life. No matter how small you feel, how inadequate you feel God takes the small things and He does big things with them.
1: Perhaps as you have been listening to today's broadcast, you felt a stirring in your heart, something that reminded you that you need to get something right in your life with God. If you would like more information, please visit our website at church-redeemer.org. May God bless you and make you a blessing.